welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. Here comes episode nine. It's a doozy. In episode eight, we explored General Gage's powder raids, and we know he has another one coming. It goes badly, so we're going to need beer. Kristen? I'm here for that. Yay. Today's beer pairing is a great fit. We are highlighting Battle Road Brewery, named after a big feature in today's episode. The brew house is located in Maynard, Massachusetts. I went out to Maynard to pick up these two beers that they generously provided us, and I have to say the space is super cool. It's in an old mill, so it's all open floor plan, sweet patio, really good food. I'll be going back there for sure, but at the moment, we have two different beers to try, so we need to get started with our first one. Yes, please. It's a Colch. Colch is cool. Totally. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to get this growler open. It's 64 ounces. It's humongous. I feel like I'm wrangling a beast trying to get this open. Okay. Gosh, it's a beautiful color. Should we huzzah this? Yes. Huzzah! Huzzah! Oh, I can really smell and taste the wheat. Yeah, I get that too. There's a lot of grassy notes in this. The Minuteman Gold does use some wheat malt, which is probably what you're tasting, Brooke, with those wheat notes. I'm also interestingly getting some blueberry notes. Not so much the fruit forward elements of a blueberry, but the sort of earthy skin texture. (laughs) Of course, you're picking up on blueberry skin tasting (laughs) notes. I don't taste any blueberry at all. To be clear, this is not a blueberry wheat beer. We're kind of making it sound like that, or I'm making it sound like that. <laughs> Just you. <laughs> but this is instead a Kolsch. Kolsch comes from Cologne, Germany, and has a very unique brewing process. So beer styles can often be distinguished by the kind of yeast that the brewers use. The two biggest categories, you'll probably have heard of these, are lagers and ales. Yeah, check and check. Mm-hmm. Generally, ales are brewed with top-fermenting yeast, at warmer temperatures. That's the thing to remember. Ales, warmer temperatures. Lagers are often brewed with bottom fermenting yeast at... Colder temperatures? Nailed it. (laughs) Colder temperatures. So a Kolsch is a hybrid of these two styles. It's fermented with ale yeast, but finished in cold temperatures like a lager. So you get the drinkability of an ale paired with the crisp finish of a lager, and it's delicious. That's fun. It's worth mentioning, too, here that the name of the beer, Minuteman Gold, we're going to talk about Minutemen later in the episode. But we have two beers today, so I'm going to open the next one. Great. Our second beer is the 1775 Tavern Ale. It's Battle Road Brewing's flagship beer. So this is the first beer they ever brewed. It comes in at 5.4% ABV. Uh, Were these poured and ready to drink, Brooke? Yes. All right. Huzzah! Huzzah! 
I'll say something for Battle Road beers. Both of these have a really strong aroma. I feel like I know what I'm going to taste without having to taste the beer, which is pretty unique given all the beers we've tried so far. Yeah, there's a super big nose on these. And I really like this beer a lot, but I have to say it's a little different than typical American pale ales. When Brooke was pouring it, the first thing that stood out, like the straw color of the Minuteman Gold, this one is a deep amber. I can again really taste the malt, which makes it seem more typical of an English style pale ale. Yeah, and we're right on the cusp of deciding between England and America, so that fits perfectly with this podcast. Oh my God, your comment does, yeah. <laughs> and we will be sipping these beers as both the Redcoats and the Rebels, some of whom are Minutemen, by the way, travel down Battle Road to Lexington and Concord. So get us started on the history. Okay, I'm so pumped about this episode because we get to talk about Paul Revere. He was a big drinker, so he'd be really proud that we have two beers today. And he goes on a famous midnight ride. We left off episode eight with Gage leading two earlier powder raids. I mean, they were terrible disasters, <laughs> but nevertheless, and Hancock and Adams were hanging out in Lexington. Despite Gage's attempts to keep this third powder raid a secret, Gage's cover was blown yet again. Of course. April 18th, 1775, Bostonians saw Redcoats gather at the base of Boston Common and alerted Joseph Warren, who was one of the only remaining rebel leaders in Boston. I have to say, it's kind of hard to keep it a secret when there's men in bright red mobilizing (laughs) in a public park. Yeah, and hundreds of them. (laughs) So with this intel, Warren thought that this could be the next raid. So he summoned Paul Revere and told him to go to Lexington and alert Adams and Hancock, who he feared might be kidnapped as part of Gage's plan. Revere was also to alert Concord, a town five miles from Lexington, that the British might also head there and destroy colonial munitions. Warren chose Revere to be his messenger because he was a trusted rebel with plenty of street cred. As you remember from the previous episode, Revere had been sent down to Philadelphia to carry the Suffolk Resolves to the First Continental Congress. We've talked about him before, but in this episode, he's our key player. Paul Revere was born in the North End, the same neighborhood where Thomas Hutchinson lived. Revere's dad was a silversmith who arrived to North America from France with the poetic name I love this name so much. His name was Apollos Rivoire. Is that everything? I love it. I know. And then he anglicized it and became Paul Revere. (laughs) Now, Paul Jr. apprenticed with his father and ultimately became one of the finest silversmiths in the colonies. His work came with a bonus. It gave him access to both the lower orders of men and the leaders in Boston. This is sort of like Joseph Warren with his medical practice, where he worked on lower sorts, but he also worked on John Hancock. As an artisan, Revere could relate to and mingle easily among these other artisans, who were often the ones joining violent mobs. (laughs) But the wealthy wanted what Revere crafted and commissioned his works of silver for their homes, so they were familiar with him too. There were two other ways that he socialized. Revere loved the tavern culture that was so prevalent in Boston at this time. We love that. And that drew him further into political circles. I'll totally drink to that. And I'll be drinking my 1775 tavern ale because it's 1775 at this point in our narrative. And our buddy Paul Revere was there. So and he loved taverns. Yeah, perfect. I'm a half sip too. He also joined the Masons, which expanded his exposure to influential political thinkers, including Joseph Warren and John Hancock. 
Because Revere was so connected then, he made a perfect messenger. And when we think of Paul Revere's ride, we think of it being, you know, this spontaneous event. But Gage had been making the rebels suspicious for a while with these failed powder raids. Actually, a few days before he went on his famous midnight ride, Revere stopped in Charlestown, a small town across the harbor from Boston. And he devised a plan with some of the men there. This is a really genius 18th century way to send a signal. Okay, Christ Church in the city of Boston, known today as Old North Church, had the highest steeple in Boston at 191 feet. Because of that, it was easily seen from Charlestown across the harbor, which would make it the ideal spot to put up a signal. Revere agreed, quote, if the British went out by water, we should show two lanthorns in the North Church steeple, and if by land, one as a signal. One if I land, two if I see. That's way snappier. By the way, he did really say lanthorns, um, <laughs> but he means lanterns. That's how he spelled it. After being summoned by Warren on the night of April 18th and told that this was not a trial run, Revere went to John Pulling and Robert Newman and told them to hang two lanterns in Old North Church's steeple. Revere and Warren knew the Redcoats would be traveling by sea. That's why they hung the two lanterns, because Bostonians had seen them set up on Boston Common, which bordered the Charles River at this time. And the sea that they're referring to is the Charles River, because there's two routes that you could go. You could cross the Charles River over to Cambridge, or you could take the Neck, which is the land route. So they were going by sea. Okay, so the lanterns are up, but likely only for a few seconds. I mean, it was a very brief time, but it was long enough for the people in Charlestown to receive the signal and get a horse ready for Revere. He then rode, that's R-O-W-E-D, in a boat across the Charles River to Charlestown and got on a borrowed horse. Revere then rode, (laughs) R-O-D-E, beginning around 11 o'clock at night. He called the night, quote, very pleasant. Did he actually shout, the British are coming, the British are coming? Such a good question. All colonists were British at this time, so so the warning wouldn't make sense, really. Instead, Revere exclaimed that, quote, the regulars were coming out. Regulars was a term for the soldiers in the British standing army. How regular. 18th century basic. Totally. Uh, Revere didn't ride alone that night. Actually, Warren sent out a man named William Dawes, who was going to take the longer land route over the neck. And then these two, Revere and Dawes, had support behind them. When they would get to a town and alert them, that town would ring its church bells, which could be heard by a nearby town, which would then ring its church bells. So this alarm went viral. It's 18th century viral, but uh, more and more people are spreading the word. It's a total group effort, but we know Longfellow only highlighted Revere in his poem that he wrote in 1861. Poor Dawes. I know, it's such a ripoff because this poem is what immortalized Paul Revere in revolutionary history. Dawes is mostly forgotten, except we're bringing him back in this podcast. Revere made it to Lexington around midnight and told Hancock and Adams to flee, which they eventually did. And then Dawes arrived a half hour later from the longer land route. Then Revere and Dawes set off for Concord, the sort of second part of their mission. On the way, Revere and Dawes met a doctor, Samuel Prescott, who Revere claimed to be, quote, a high son of liberty. Prescott said that he would help them spread the alarm. It turned out to be very fortuitous that these guys met because Prescott would be the only one of the three to make it to Concord. Oh, yikes. What happened to the other ones? Well, things are about to go badly for Revere. 
As the three men were riding, they came across British soldiers with guns drawn. Whoa, things are turning quickly. <laughs> I know. So Prescott jumps his horse over a low wall and got away. Dawes also escaped and headed home shortly after. I think it had been enough of a night for him. <laughs> Revere was not as lucky. Six officers came upon him, surrounded him, and ordered him to dismount. Revere said one officer, quote, clapped his pistol to my head and said he was going to ask me some questions. The officer threatened that if Revere did not tell the truth, quote, he would blow my brains out. Wow. <laughs> I know, it turned really quickly. <laughs> Revere complied, though, and he even warned the British troops. I mean, Revere's pretty mouthy here. He tells them that the British troops would encounter trouble if they made it to Lexington. I don't know why, but the troops release Revere and then they steal his borrowed horse. What a night for him. I can't believe it included him being captured and almost get his brains blown out. <laughs> Seriously, but luckily he'd done most of his job. I mean, we can give him credit for meeting Prescott and sending Prescott out with the alarm because Prescott makes it. Because of Revere's alarm, about 130 men from Lexington's militia gathered on Lexington Common around 1 a.m. Right, and we know Boston Common, we've talked about that, but most New England towns at this time had a common area in you know, the center of town or outskirts of town or nearby where people could gather. So this is a common phrase, the common. <laughs> No pun intended. Yeah, so they're at Lexington Common, and the Lexington militia was mostly middle-aged men with some younger and older outliers. 46-year-old John Parker had been selected as the militia's leader because of his battle experience and clear head. And many of the men in these militia were, like John Parker, battle-hardened soldiers who'd been training together for years and had fought in the French and Indian War the decade before. Most Massachusetts town had their militia gather four times a year for training, but since the beginning of 1775, Lexington and other towns had been training more earnestly in case there was armed conflict. So things had been tense in Boston after the passage of the Coercive Acts, but the countryside, as we know from the other powder raids, got really heightened at this time too. The militia gathered on Lexington Common and waited, and nothing happened for the first hour or so. So many men wandered home and others retired to Buckman Tavern. <laughs> I love this. I feel like that's where I'd head also. I know. Let's have that 1775 Tavern Ale. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how this morning in Lexington changed everything for the colonies. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. Back in Boston, the Redcoats weren't moving quickly. They were led by Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith and Major John Pitcairn. Smith had his soldiers wait for two hours hours before sailing across the Charles River. So they're dressed in red, they're lollygagging. I don't know how this was ever going to be a secret. Seriously. And when the troops finally landed in Cambridge, Kristen, they landed in a swamp and then they wasted another hour before moving out. Super well organized. <laughs> the 700 British troops then began their march towards Lexington and they had orders to take the militia's weapons and disperse them. They were not to bother the colonists or take any of them prisoners which meant that Hancock and Adams were actually never in danger. The Redcoats simply needed to get through Lexington to get to the munitions in Concord. 
So the British troops were getting closer to Lexington, and they weren't going to find Hancock and Adams there, but they were going to find about 70 men from Lexington who had remained nearby. Remember, most of the other ones had gone home. Parker had them line up in two feeble lines on the common. The British troops arrived around dawn and lined up within 100 yards of the militia. 70 farmers versus 700 British soldiers. The British officers told the militia to lay down their arms. Things are going to escalate very quickly here. The shot heard round the world rang out. Historians don't know who fired the first shot. Perhaps a gun accidentally discharged, an overeager redcoat shot from the back of the columns, or a spectator wanted some action. But after the first shot was fired, the regulars began firing in earnest, despite no order to fire and ignoring their officers' orders to cease fire. This reminds me of what happened at the Boston Massacre when the troops also fired without orders. It's really scary. And the British officers could not get control of their men. It wasn't any less confusing for the militia, many of whom thought the regulars were simply firing blank warning shots. When the men from Lexington realized they were actually being hit and wounded, many ran. A few men stayed and were able to fire a few shots against the British. After several chaotic moments, Colonel Smith finally found a drummer who beat orders for the Redcoats to cease fire. When you see these 18th century depictions of battlefields, you see drummer boys and the drummer boys aren't there for entertaining they actually beat different orders on that drum so finally he finds his drummer the redcoat cease fire and the battle was over the battle of lexington had been a terrifying display of the british troops lack of discipline and control eight men died and 17 men were wounded they were all colonists most of the casualties had been shot in the back as they had turned to run I know. And worse, this bloodshed in Lexington had not been necessary to fulfill the Redcoats' order for that day, which had only been to take munitions from Concord. They were certainly not to shoot the colonists they encountered on the way. Not to take anything away from this morbid and sad moment, but I have to say Gage just can't seem to get a powder in right. Seriously. And given how this morning had gone, you wouldn't blame the officers if they wanted to bail. Some officers thought it was a terrible idea to continue with their mission in Concord. Because there's only one road in and out of Concord. Right. And they're (laughs) concerned that after going to Concord, they'd have to march back through Lexington Ah, on their way to Boston. That makes sense. Smith pulled rank, though, and told his men that these were their orders and they were going to Concord. The regulars arrived in Concord around 8 a.m. and found a town that seemed to be deserted of men and munitions, so the soldiers decided to split up. About half of them moved toward the edge of town, including some troops who guarded the North Bridge. What they didn't know was that the men from Concord, also known as the Minutemen, who'd mustered... Woo, that's our first reference to Minutemen, so it's time to grab our Minuteman colch. Ooh, good idea. So the Minutemen are stationed at the top of a hill. And then we've got troops in town and troops guarding the North Bridge. The soldiers in town fulfilled their orders and seized the military stores that they could find. They carelessly tossed musket balls into ponds where they were later retrieved by the people of Concord. Stupid plan. (laughs) Yeah. And what could be burned was made a part of a bonfire. 
From the hillside, the Minutemen, comprising men from Concord and neighboring towns, could see smoke coming from the center of Concord and worried that the Redcoats were trying to burn down Concord. Right, they have no idea what the British plan on doing right now. No idea. They just see fire and everyone's improvising. So the Minutemen move from their defensive position on the hill to an offensive position, coming within 50 yards of the regulars stationed at North Bridge. The two groups stared at each other. The tension broke when, for the second time that morning, a redcoat fired without orders. More British soldiers then fired. The Minutemen were told to fire and they did not hesitate, hitting half of the British soldiers in their first volley. The redcoats were now in a particularly vulnerable position because they were jumbled together at one end of the bridge and they're being fired on. So they decided to retreat back to the center of Concord. The British officers were stunned that the militia had squared off against the soldiers at the bridge and decided that their men had seen enough action for the day. They had learned a new lesson that the colonists will actually fight back. It seriously. So they thought it best to cut their losses and head back to Boston. Now, based on that morning's alarm, way to go, Paul Revere, (laughs) men from over 40 towns west and north of Boston marched toward Concord, swelling colonial forces that afternoon to 2,100 men. So if we think about the 70 men that started in Lexington to now 2,100 men, it's astounding how many in the countryside mobilized and how quickly they did. The Redcoats retreat then back to Boston was going to be embattled because there's only one road home. Today, this road is known as Battle Road. Woo, beer! <laughs> These men concealed themselves along Battle Road and fired on the Redcoats, who, by the way, were fairly easy targets with their bright red uniforms. Uh. <laughs> Captain Parker and his men from Lexington listened to this. Some were bloodied and bandaged from the attack earlier that morning. They got in some shots on this retreat home. They were concealed at the top of the hill. And they shot several men and even gave Colonel Smith a thigh wound. This became known as Parker's Revenge. I'm sure that they were very happy that they ended up getting into better action than what they had earlier that morning. Good for them. Smith described the malicious tactics that day, saying, quote, They began to fire on us from behind the walls, ditches, trees, etc. So basically, we have soldiers wearing red uniforms marching on one road, and the colonists are hidden from view firing on them. Great tactic. Yeah. Gage reported... I mean, Gage, God. <laughs> he says there was, quote, a continual skirmish for the space of 15 miles. Duh, 15 miles back to Boston, Exactly, and the whole thing was embattled. The troops eventually, though, make it back to Boston. It had been a devastating day for the British Army and General Gage. Of the two battles that day, Lexington and Concord, his troops lost the deadlier one. According to Gage, the British had total casualties that day, and casualties includes dead, wounded, and missing. He had 272 casualties. The colonists suffered only about a third of that, 94 total casualties. A British general named Hugh Percy had arrived in Lexington with reinforcements for the retreat home. And the day after the battle, he wrote to a fellow officer about the rebels, quote, I never believed, I confess, that they would have attacked the king's troops or have had the perseverance I found in them yesterday. He warned, quote, whoever looks upon them as an irregular mob will find himself much mistaken. 
They may have been an irregular mob in episode one, but not by episode nine. And that's really amazing for Percy to recognize. Very totally. few British officials seem to grasp the capability of the colonists at this time. Finally, their fighting spirit is getting some credit. Yeah, and the battles that day taught Percy that it wasn't just Boston who had stumbled and determined rebels. The countryside did too. Mercy Otis Warren, you may remember she was one of our key players from episode two. She echoed some of Percy's ideas also after the Battle of Lexington. She wrote, quote, I have long expected the contest we have engaged in must be decided by the sword and never doubted, but it would finally terminate to the glory of America. Justice is now demanded at the point of the bayonet. Ooh, powerful. I know, she's so poetic. Gage also knew things were bad. Uh, he's less poetic. But <laughs> so he wants to control both the information and people that went in and out of Boston. To do so, Gage built fortifications on the neck of Boston and prevented people from leaving or bringing in supplies without his permission. The rebels, who were busy recruiting an army at this point, responded with a barricade of their own. Eventually, over 15,000 colonists guarded these barricades outside and around Boston. And with that, Boston was under siege. It seems like the Revolutionary War has really begun. Yes, definitely. And the town under siege at this time is essentially an island. It trapped the British Redcoats loyalists and a handful of rebels inside. Life was grim in Boston during the siege. There was a demand for resources that supply could not match. British soldiers frequently tore down homes, bridges, and fences for fuel. Fresh food was scarce, and as the laws of supply and demand dictate, the cost of food was very expensive. With a diet lacking necessary protein and nutrients, inhabitants in Boston were dying at an alarming rate, especially among the poor and elderly. Dysentery and smallpox were chief killers. Gross. In the midst of this disgusting and depressing town that is occupied by redcoats and loyalists, one hardcore rebel actually wants to go into the belly of the beast. Why? I know. Why would he endanger himself like that? We'll tell you in our last episode. Oh, sniff. How exciting. But we're really going to go for it. We had two beers today. We're having two beers for the finale. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear what we'll be drinking next. Eager to learn more? We are at your service. Join Yield Tavern Tours, that's old with an E, the next time you're in Boston. Our company motto is, because beer makes history even better, which obviously helped inform our podcast. The tours are a social and fun way to learn about Boston's revolutionary and drunken past, while also enjoying craft beers in historic taverns. The tours are led by historians, including me and Kristen. If you won't be in Boston anytime soon, you can read the book I wrote, Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. It's available on Amazon. To highlight our key player, we'll be drinking Connector from Switchback Brewing Company. And to celebrate the end of the siege in Boston, we'll huzzah with Victory at Sea from Ballast Point Brewing Company. How exciting! Huzzah! So join us one last time as beer makes history.